Welcome to Multiverse OQ, your guide to the comic book multiverse, now in podcast form. I'm Luke, and for our second week of Marvel Noir Month, I'm joined by a special guest. Please introduce yourself. Cameron Diordio. Hi, everybody. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Hi, Cameron. So for those of you who have heard your name but are unfamiliar with you, what do you do or what have you done? Uh, that's a long list. Uh, no, but I, uh, I'm a comic book writer. Uh, I most recently, uh, wrote for Boo 2017, that anthology collection, and you might recognize my work as the co-writer on Josie and the Pussycats for Archie Comics. I wrote that with Marguerite Bennett with some really, really pretty art by Audrey Mock. So are you more of a, is it long tails and ears for hats? Yes. Are you a long tails person or an ears for hats? Uh, I think ears for hats are more practical out in the world, although I'm not going to judge anyone who chooses the tech. Well, I mean, yeah, tail's really just something else you have to work around unless it's, like, prehensile. Yeah, and also, it's worth pointing out that uh, the phrase pussy hats, which is now a big part of the modern lexicon, was uh, uttered, maybe not first, but perhaps most famously in the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats movie. I've been meaning to watch that because it's sort of entering into the, oh, yeah, this was a good movie. Nobody watched it. Yeah, it, I really love that movie. I mean, I'm not going to bore you with a huge, long, waxing poetic about it, but I, I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you for introducing yourself. So today we are covering the first volume of X-Men Noir, uh, which is X-Men Noir number one through four which was written by Fred Van Lente with art by Dennis Calero and letters by Nate Piekos. And it is weird. It sure is. Now, have you like read a lot of like Fred Van Lente's other work? Uh, I enjoyed, oh man, I'm, I think it's Planet Hulk or World War Hulk. I can't remember which, which he co-wrote with Greg Pak, And I liked that a lot. Uh, that was my main Fred Van Lente touchstone. Uh, I, I thought the uh, Planet Hulk stuff... Oh, no, Hercules. I'm thinking of Hercules. Yeah, That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. I'm thinking of Hercules during the Planet Hulk event and also outside of it. Yeah, yes, yeah. Hercules with those two. I really like that a lot. Yeah, like, it's good stuff. He also did the uh, Power Man series with the uh, newer Power Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get to that, but I've heard good things. And he also wrote Cowboys and Aliens, which was co-authored, which I'm pretty sure in this case means the other guy had an idea to uh, get some money and uh, hired Van Lente to write for him. And I want to say, wasn't the artist, uh, Dennis, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Calero, Solero, uh, wasn't he also attached to Cowboys and Aliens, I think? but uh, No, that... Maybe I'm maybe I'm No, that was uh, Luciano Lima. Oh, gotcha. Uh, Calero has done some other work, though. Uh, he did that Moonstone Kolchak, the Night Stalker book. Did not catch it. It was one of those things that I picked up at like a half price books because I was really into Kolchak, the Night Stalker at the time. That's a reasonable thing to be into, I think. I uh, I got low-key interested in it when I was reading Stephen King's Dance Macabre, and he ended up talking about it a little bit. <laughs> Well, I mean, how many other TV shows have a murder mystery about a werewolf on a cruise ship? Not enough, I'd contend. Exactly. But yeah, Calero 
is trying to do some noir stuff, but it just does not work in this comic. No, I mean, he experiences with lighting in a lot of ways that I think succeed more as the comic goes on. But as we were talking about a little, a little bit before we, uh, we started recording, uh, the heavy reliance on photo reference early on is a little rough. Um, and I do miss some of the action sometimes. That might have been just the way that the guided view on the Comixology app was treating oh, me to a I never use guided view because it is rarely used well. Yeah, I my problem was I was reading it on my mm. phone and I didn't think to put it on my... Uh, I couldn't find a way to get it on my computer very easily, but uh, that's my own oh. issue. But I did zoom out when I could uh, to take a look, and still I did have a little bit of trouble, I think. Yeah, as usual, you can go to multiversalq.com and see the image gallery as well as the notes that I took for the issue. And uh, yeah, we might as well get into it. This is one of the many comics that unearthed 90214, and none of them that I've read so far really actually fit together, which is also very weird. That is strange. I mean, you'd think that if they're doing this... Uh... I don't know if you'd call it an event. I guess it's an event. Then you'd think there'd be some more stuff hanging together. Although I will say I do kind of appreciate, in a way, that they're giving these creative teams this freedom to kind of play in this weird alternate world. Yeah, it's more of an imprint than an event because it was uh, published in two separate batches and then they had some other follow-ups for the stuff that was more popular. Like... X-Men Noir had the sequel, which I'll be covering towards the end of the month, and then it also had a one-shot that Dennis Clara both wrote and illustrated. Oh, wow. I didn't know about the one-shot. I know the sequel goes into Kane Marco stuff, right? Not, not really. Like, he shows up, but the... It's uh, that that's strange because I think it's called Mark of yeah, Kane. Yeah. I remember I think reading it's like about the bands of Ciderac, right? Yeah, the uh, Crimson Gin of Ciderac. Oh, sorry. The the other side wreck on mm-hmm. effect. But yeah. So we start off with Peter Magnus, who is a former track star because he's the alternate version of Pietro. And I will say, or Pietro Maximoff, a.k.a. Quicksilver. And I will say some of the stuff that they do here is not awful as far as making sort of contained different versions of these mutant characters without really explicitly giving anyone powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way they were handle Pietro, and especially, well, the way they were talking about Rogue, which we'll get to, obviously, mm-hmm. and Jean Grey to a lesser extent, but really the Rogue stuff, the way they handled her quote-unquote power was very interesting, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a detective in New York City where his father, Eric Magnus, is the chief of detectives, and he has been assigned a new partner, Fred Dukes, and they are called in when a woman is found dead with three blade marks in her body. And Peter's a good guy. I mean, he's, like, caring. He believes in law and order. He believes that, like, the police are just, and so it's interesting seeing him lose those ideals very, very quickly. Yeah, it's interesting seeing... uh, Usually you don't have two idealistic noir protagonists, I feel like. But uh, I guess two and a half, really, which we'll get to. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it is interesting to see Pietro's journey as Peter's journey as he uh, comes to terms with the fact that the world's not quite uh, as good as he'd hoped. Mm-hmm. 
uh, he immediately starts seeing that because the police are uninterested in this body, which has a X tattoo on it, meaning that the woman who was killed was a member of the X-Men, which was a group of criminals led by Charles Xavier, who is now in Rikers because he was supposed to be reforming these delinquents and instead he taught them how to do crime better. And the dead woman in this instance is Jean Grey. And all the police are like, oh yeah, she was pretty much going to die because of genetics. Yeah, it's very... So the idea of introducing eugenics as a thing in an X-Men book taking place in uh, the late 30s in America is an interesting idea, but I feel like it's kind of put out there and it's played with a little bit, but I don't know if it was really interrogated a lot. And so you kind of got these like awkward kind of problematic things going around. Like the fact that there's a lot of talk about it, but like all the characters are pretty much white except for one or two backup characters. And while there's some like stuff against the Irish and some other European immigrant European immigrant groups. It's uh, it's it's just something they throw out there for like, oh, that's why we're fine hating these people. Yeah. And I mean, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the idea of uh, Magneto being a eugenicist and also a cop. I mean, I realize that these noir characters are dark mirror verse versions of themselves pretty much uh across the board but i think that that in particular might have been a bit of a tone deaf decision considering magneto's whole shtick but on the other hand i can see it fitting as far as he's a person who realizes the system is corrupt and Mm-hmm. he's going to do what he can to make himself both fit in and also come into a position of power, which means supporting the unfortunate systems that are discriminating against people. I think that's definitely a fair read, and I think it's also supported by Bobby Drake dropping some homophobic moments at times. Uh, so the idea of kind of trying to conform to get by in this society uh, are definitely... It's definitely a theme that kind of gets poked through a lot. Not a lot, but a fair amount. Uh, so I think that's a fair reading. I think that I still have my reservations about it, but I think that is definitely a fair reading on the text. Now, I would comment in regards to your Iceman uh, comment. Like, this was maybe a decade before he came out. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So it was just a lot of uh, subtext, but I mean... Yeah, just unfortunate echoes of uh, with dramatic irony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, meanwhile, at the Creole Club, Tommy Holloway, a reporter for the Daily Pugle, is looking for Jean Grey as well. He ends up talking to Remy LeBeau, who owns the club and who the X-Men owe money to. And as he returns to his car, he sees Bishop, who is Remy's muscle, attacking a woman, and he saves her. The woman turning out to be Wanda Magnus, the daughter of Eric Magnus. And after that, he heads over to Rikers to meet with Charles Xavier, and he gets caught reading a sci-fi pulp by Boulevard Trask. Boulevard Trask being the guy who normally creates the Sentinels in the Marvel 616 universe. And it's all about eugenics and future Sentinels, and like a chapter of each of the issues is printed at the end of each of the issues of the comic, which is weird. We'll get to that at the end. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
this is where like the art gets really, really awful because we get two full pages of like the exact same panels repeated with long, awful word balloons and it's bad comics. Yeah, it's uh, I, I would say static, but it's almost like I, I think it might be more accurate to say it's anti-dynamic. It is talking heads and not in the good way. And like this is interesting. I, I was going to say sorry to interrupt, but I think that they use the repeated panel a little more effectively later on in the series. But uh, it was a little too egregious this time around. Yeah, well, like later on, they at least do some zooming in. But here it's mm-hmm. literally just the exact same shot over and over. And the font choice that they used here is like, oh, hey, we need to have a noir font. Let's let's like find the first thing we can get. And so it all looks like it's written on a typewriter, which is not good. It's yeah, uh, the alignment is a little off mm-hmm. for effect, but uh, it does make for a weird reading experience to a degree. Though, weirdly, I would say that the alignment is possibly an issue with Marvel's digitalization team, where if you ever read Unlimited Comics, you will come across issues where, for whatever reason, the text ends up loading incorrectly. So if you have like a two-page spread it will have the width of a single page. So all the text is like compressed over to 50% of its normal width. Oh, wow. I, uh, I read a little bit of Marvel Unlimited in the time that I had it, and I didn't encounter that, but it sounds like an, an awful experience. Does it resolve itself if you reload, or is it just it, lost cause? Sometimes it does, but like Marvel Unlimited is not a good setup. Like if you go right now and try and read X-Men Noir on unlimited by using the browse through series option it only brings up two comics and those are a fake zero issue and a fake number three issue neither of which are readable and neither of which get you to the actual comic you have to google (laughs) for the comic to find it so that you can actually read it online um Marvel, if you're listening to this, I'm a digital content specialist. I do a lot of work with <laughs> databases. You can just hire me to do all this stuff. Anyways, we are not <laughs> here to uh, have me offer my services as a good, good content boy. That is bonkers, though. Yeah, because they have people paying money for this every month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> what are they doing? So... <laughs> Yeah, there's a brief talk about sociopathy and Gene turning up dead. Tommy ends up asking if Charles knows what the X-Men are doing now and where he can find them. And that is when he is forced to leave by the prison guard, but not before being told to look for Marie Rankin on a note, which is neat because they sort of merge Calvin Rankin, who was Mimic, who could copy the powers of the X-Men with Anna Marie Raven, who was Rogue. Yeah, that's pretty great. Um, I also, I thought it was interesting that they made Xavier's whole thing, his shtick, be that he thought that sociopathy was the next step in human evolution. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if, not sure how well that that sticks the landing, but I think it's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Like it's the human mind evolving where they're no longer empathetic towards other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I want to know where uh, Fred Van Lente did like research to get a lot of the stuff that he's going for. 
Because I mean, like the, with the the science of the time and the psychology of the time. Yeah, because the stuff that he does, like action philosophers and comic book history of comics, he does a lot of research for those. And so it's just like, was this him putting together some half remembered stuff that he found on a single Wikipedia search, or was this like any? Is there veracity to what he's saying? I do wonder if maybe he was drawing more from the pulp of the time than from the actual science of the time. Cause, uh, I mean, oh, we'll get to the backups, uh, later mm-hmm. on, but that definitely did mirror like a lot of, uh, uh, was it called Sundiver? Uh, like the, that era's sci-fi and like the thirties, forties, early fifties. Uh, so that mirrored it so well and parodied, parodied it to such a degree that I did wonder if maybe instead of going for actual science at the time, he went for what would be, in a pulpy thing from that time. Yeah. If that makes sense. The uh, pseudoscience that's needed just to move the story along. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So Peter and Fred end up going to a police bar where Peter sees his father and his men beating the tar out of Blackie Cassidy, a variant of Black Tom Cassidy, who is an Irish organizer, and Magnus has been using him to get Irish people into areas to help drive down prices on property. Magnus welcomes his son to the Brotherhood, and Peter runs out, shocked by the corruption. Yeah, um, I thought that was interesting that... I guess I, I would love to know, in this story's deal, what Peter's upbringing was like, that his father was able to hide this from him so well. Uh, I mean, obviously that happens, uh, but I don't know. I guess that he looks up to his father so much, I would think that he'd be at least have more of an inkling that his father isn't this perfect, shining force for good, you know? Yeah, because I don't necessarily get the feeling that he went to a lot of private schools, but I also feel like that might have been what happened with him. Yeah, that's a good point. Harder to know what's going on when you're away. Mm Mm-hmm. And Tommy, meanwhile, breaks into the X-Men's base and he gets attacked by them. And we get more of these like flashback sequences that we get where Tommy is being taught by various criminals at the uh, prison where he grew up. And I think this is where we have the Tommy Holloway conversation, because did you know about Tommy Holloway before? Uh, I, I knew a little bit. I remember that he was angel but i ended up doing some independent research afterwards Mm -hmm. and i remember being confused because i was like warm working than the third i was like okay we've got angel he's dead but we've got him and then it's like wait this is a different angel uh so i i was not fully aware but i had a a vague inkling yeah i had run across him i think last year when i was doing research for the uh new york arc of exiled because he was one of the people who's uh printed in the first marvel number one adventure And he's pretty much a guy with guns who shoots criminals and eventually he gets a magical flying cape, but he isn't a mutant. And so it's so weird that they make him this major figure in a comic that is ostensibly called X-Men Noir. Like if it was Marvel Noir and that was like the serious title, I'd be better with it. But instead it's like, oh yeah, here's this dude who we've got some interesting ideas on what to do with him. But he's not really an X Men character to any degree. Yeah, I, I think he was. I think he was chosen. Uh, I think he was reverse engineered from the twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So they, they're like, okay, we've got this situation, so this is the perfect character for that. Yeah. And so back in the present, Tommy is facing down Cyclops, Iceman, and the Beast, who know that Magnus ended up killing Jean, just like he and his policeman also killed Warren Worthington III, a.k.a. Angel, trying to frame them, and so he offers an alliance. Meanwhile, Sebastian Shaw is angry that the X-Men have robbed from him, which is a major problem, along with the Uncuncion problem, uh, which is their version of Unus the Untouchable, which I keep running into Unus the Untouchable again, and that dude needs a return. <laughs> yeah, I'd be definitely for seeing more Unus the Untouchable in more stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sebastian Shaw is trying to help to develop the city, and Unis is untouchable by the police and so shaw calls magnus out for not doing his job and taking unis down and also for being an immigrant yep back at home wanda comes in to find peter waiting for her drunk on the couch he points out that their father is corrupt and she is known for it for a while and that's how she gets to enjoy her life yeah wanda is a strange character in this uh She's, she's definitely got a lot of noir tropes going on. Uh, I mean, being in and over her head in gambling debts and expecting the men around her to handle that. Uh, I was kind of hoping we'd get those shaken up a little bit more, but mm-hmm. she's perfectly serviceable, I think. Yeah, and I mean, it's an interesting way of probability and, like, things going wrong as her powers. Like, it's yes. a way of getting that in. Which... I like the story more as we discuss it than I do actually reading it. (laughs) Like, the ideas are there, it's just the execution is not great. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment, and yeah, that's how I was feeling. At first, I was a little more, I was pushing back a little more, but uh, as I got more into it, I was definitely trying to pick apart the ideas and kind of came to the similar conclusion that we're talking about right now, where Mm. some some good underpinning ideas, but didn't quite stick the landing. So back with the X-Men, Tommy tries to suss out what was going Tommy tries to suss out what was going on when Jean got killed, which was when all the X-Men were out robbing the Hellfire Club, and when they had returned, she was gone. Tommy has some notes that he had taken, along with notes on Anna Marie Rankin, who was also trained by X-Men, and who had learned to imitate the people whom she interacted with. And Tommy believes that the X-Men wanted them to find her. And they believe that she is likely tangled up with someone else trying to live off of them. Magnus, meanwhile, goes to visit Xavier and he wants Marie to get close to Unis. That way he can kill Unis off. And he threatens the students if Xavier does not produce her. Yeah, I really liked and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I really liked the way they handled Rogue. I guess are we calling this a straight Rogue uh, port or do we want to include Mimic in there because of the name situation? Uh, I think it works enough because, I mean, Mimic's whole thing was, oh, he can mimic the powers of people. So mm. it, it it's essentially the same, just different trappings. Yeah. I thought the way that they handled that uh, within the framework of Xavier being all about sociopathy being the next evolution in human behavior and uh, the idea of Rogue being this phenomenal code switcher, basically being able to adapt to the personalities around her in any way, uh, basically being a perfect 
also chameleon in social situations. Uh, I thought that was a really good, uh, I guess, realization of the professor's vision, and I thought that was seeded well. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody else really gets that development. It's like, oh, Beast is still an athletic, bulky boy, and Cyclops is good at shooting things, and he only has one eye, but Iceman, you don't really get that same thing. Yeah, I didn't get really anything from Iceman other than he, he wears a scarf. doesn't like people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's a cold killer. Hey. So Tommy goes to Anna Marie's apartment as the NYPD are closing in on her for fraud. So Tommy moves in to attack them. And we get a flash of him getting training from Kane, the juggernaut Marco, which... Like we mentioned, it's weird because it seems like he'd be a bigger figure in the second story, but he isn't really. Uh, during the fight, he ends up jumping across a roof and has a chance to kill Mortimer Toynbee, a.k.a. this universe's version of the Toad. And he refuses to kill him. And that will come back later. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I actually didn't think to make that parallel uh until now maybe i just wasn't reading closely enough but i mean that is a good seeding moment for what mm -hmm. happens later but, but uh, uh, i wonder if maybe it could have been done could have been hit harder to drive that home well and that art on that page is like very very hard to read mm -hmm. like to actually get what the action is yeah it's... that was definitely one of the spots where i was kind of a little bit lost and had to reread it a couple times mm -hmm. So they head over to Pryor Airlines to talk, which is, hey, nice call out to Madeline Pryor. Yeah. And uh, Anna Marie. Another Jean Grey stolen identity. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, and Madeline Pryor worked for Scott Summers' grandparents who owned an airline. Good point. Good point. Pointless continuity. <laughs> and we find out that Anna Marie had been pretending to be a cousin of Warren Worthington when he died. And. She also reveals that Jean had a connection to a fence over in Chinatown. Meanwhile, we find out that Remy has attacked Wanda for the money that she owed, and Peter has just found out about this, which he is not happy about. Distinctly so, not happy. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Cyclops starts putting things together and heads to Chinatown, where he finds a man with a three-bladed weapon, like the one used in the evidence photos. This is Captain Logan. And Cyclops, believing that Logan killed Jean, attacks him. And Tommy <laughs> intercedes in the fight because he believes that Logan is innocent and this is all a setup. Dun, dun, dun. It, it's a nice build when you know what's happening and you can appreciate it more. But like once again, that art is just not good for doing this. Yeah, uh, I thought it was a, a nice little way to work in the love triangle slash uh scott logan hate uh but yeah i agree it was i think that i should I, if i do go back and reread this i think it'll be more satisfying on the second go around mm -hmm. for this little this little bit so peter meanwhile goes back to the creole club shoots remy in the head and while he's there he also sees tommy there which i i'm pretty sure that's supposed to be Tommy or a person who looks like him but once again the art is not great and it could just be another person with a mustache mm -hmm. yeah the faces are definitely hard to distinguish at times and part of that is the the light and shading but part of it is just not really it, nailing down those features it's like 
shadow being done by a person who doesn't really understand why it works, but he's just trying to use it for a trope. Yeah, I think that one of the things about... uh, I felt sort of like, and perhaps this is unfair, perhaps this is uh, not an accurate reading, but it did feel at times like instead of noir being treated as a genre, it was treated as an affectation. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of get that, it's like, oh, so we should have Shadow here. We should have this kind of twist. It's an aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it does work, and sometimes it just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. So Magnus goes to visit his son in jail, smacks him around a bit, and we get the uh, origin where we found out that uh, a man named Holloway ran the prison previously. Sean Cassidy worked with Holloway and controlled a drug trade through the prison. And normally pigeons, which we've seen used a few times throughout the uh, issues, were a early warning system. Mm-hmm. But Tommy, for some reason, ended up killing all of the pigeons. And Magnus was able to kill Sean Cassidy, which allowed him to get his promotion because before that point, all of the cops were Irish. And we find out as the readers that the warden was Tommy's father and that Tommy also has a brother. Yeah, I remember when I first got to the pigeon killing part, I was I was baffled. And then, I mean, it did make a little bit more sense when we found out about the brother situation. Uh, but it did feel like a left hook out of, out of nowhere. Uh, mm-hmm. But, I mean, I guess that's the point, is to kind of grab your attention that this is so out of character and then quickly explain it. Yeah. And so Magnus isn't putting all these things together. And, like, I didn't even put together everything at once. But uh, Magnus says that he's going to be able to get Peter out of the country because now, like, all the Irish people are going to be trying to kill him. Or, uh, shoot, all of uh, Remy's people are going to be trying to kill him. And so to do that, though, he's going to need to do a favor for Shaw, which is killing Unis and then leaving the country. And they have a plan there, and I believe it's Iceman who's listening in on the plan? I think so. Uh, It looks like his haircut. And he's got a scarf, which fits the... He's an Iceman. Yeah. (laughs) So the X-Men and Tommy are able to get the plan. They're going to get the FBI director to intercede and take down Magnus. And then Tommy has sex with Anna-Marie. Because, sure. (laughs) Why not? Okay. Yeah. We get a brief intercession where someone visits a potter's field at night. Which has no context until later. Yeah, I uh, I was very lost while reading that section. But I mean, again, that might have been intentional. That might have been sort of... Uh, I'm going to be a real lit nerd and quote T.S. Eliot, a heap of broken images... The idea of kind of getting you to look at this as strange and out of context. but So I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt here, but also it was it was a little jarring. Does that, I think, does that seem fair? I think that this would work a lot better as something with motion, like a movie or an animated thing. Mm-hmm. Just to use the tropes more effectively and some of the ideas in the setup. Yeah, I think yeah. that's I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, like unlike Spider-Man Noir, X-Men Noir never really caught on as much. Yeah. So Magnus and 
uh, the Blobs equivalent, watch Unis go into the Empire State Building, and Unis brings up the fact that... Wait, shoot. Uh, Blob <laughs> brings up the fact that uh, the Daily Bugle never actually hired anyone named Thomas Holloway, and Magnus puts everything together. Meanwhile, Bo- Beast moves in to save Unis the Untouchable in an elevator, and at the airfield at the top of the Empire State Building, someone starts shooting, disrupting the plans, and Tommy flies down to stop Peter Magnus, who is currently in a blimp, and then the blimp that they're in explodes. Tommy gets into a building, preventing him from dying, and Peter instead falls to the streets dead, right in front of his father. That beautiful pathos. Mm-hmm. Beast gets shot in a firefight with the police, while Iceman and Cyclops are able to smuggle Unis out. So Magnus decides to head to the Hellfire Club because everything is falling apart. He opens fire, killing Shaw, orders his men to burn down the building, and he's just deciding to cut off all those loose ends. Logan, meanwhile, gets informed that because he owes Holloway a favor, that favor is getting called in. Holloway, Cyclops, and Unis get back to their base, and Unis explains how uh, the entire plan is Magnus is moving gangs into areas that the city council wants to redevelop to lower the property prices, allowing Shaw to buy it up. And Magnus and his men, meanwhile, come to Tommy's house, where they find Anna Marie. And Magnus explains that he's finally figured out that Holloway used Sean Cassidy's old house, which was used to smuggle drugs to and from the prison, to like move him between everywhere. They end up breaking into the prison and attack. Unis is killed along with Iceman. Uh, Toad offers Holloway a chance to escape and uh, offers him a chance to escape, paying him back, and Cyclops just kills him. What I should have checked out, and I meant to, uh, was that Gerard Butler movie, I think it was, Upstanding Citizen or something, uh, has, like, its big plot twist is that there's a series of tunnels out of the prison that he uses to do crimes while still ostensibly arrested. And I wonder if that movie came out before or around this time. Let's find out. Upstanding Citizen was... Oh, oh Law-Abiding Citizen. Yes. Uh, that was 2009, so I think it would have been the year after this, actually. All right. Didn't mean to accuse them of biting it, just... Uh, no, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a good twist. Yeah, I, mean, I like it. You've seen The Prestige, right? Yes. Prestige spoilers. We kind of get some of that, too. <laughs> yeah, that came out two years before this, so maybe this was biting on that Prestige twist. Yeah. And also, continuity being awful. <laughs> So Magnus uh, forces Anna Marie up onto the roof and she attacks him. And that is when Tommy shows up, having seen her brutally murder Magnus. And she tries to claim that she'd absorbed Magnus's murderous tendencies. But he knows that it is all a lie because he went to Jean Grey's grave. And it turns out that the Jean who died was actually Anna Marie. And this Anna Marie is actually Jean Grey which was why she had sent him to try and face down Logan and wanted to avoid the other living X-Men. So there's your twist. Yeah, there's part one of your twist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so she had used her skills at, I guess, reading people to fool Anna Marie's lawyer to get Anna Marie's trust fund. She also killed Anna Marie 
and she's evil. She had also killed Warren Worthington instead of Magneto killing him. And she is a sociopath with no empathy. And she's trying to use Tommy's emotions for her, but it turns out that she's not actually talking to Tommy, but Robert, his twin brother. Which is, I guess, a good twist if the art would have been there to set it up. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that they uh, they included the angle of the idea of these two twins who only one gets adopted, so they kind of... Uh, I'm not sure what the correct reference would be here, but basically the idea of they just pretend to be one kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was uh, I thought that was an interesting idea of like a bad twin and a good twin trying to pretend to be the same person. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's it it feels kind of out of nowhere because the features aren't so well defined. So you're not able to pick apart like oh this might be this twin or seeing any. It's hard. It's hard to see. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. So she shoots and the two of them fall off the roof and they die. Tommy and Scott find them there. Uh, and yeah, we find out about Tommy was adopted by Willoff family. Robert wasn't. They continue to be pretending to be one person. And then Logan appears and they all decide to head off to Madripoor. The end. For now. Love when Logan shows up with a big boat. It's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Along with uh, Puck. Yes. Who gets a bit more stuff in the next issue but like all the puck stuff looks really weird because he's never drawn proportionally well yeah i was trying to get a grip on his face throughout uh Mm -hmm. it was it was it was strange yeah there's just a whole bunch of problems with the art here and like some of the other issues do use a lot of photo referencing Mm -hmm. but it does not work yeah i mean i was uh before they introduced, I think, like, right when uh, Magnus comes on panel for the first time, I was like, oh, that's Ian McKellen, so this is going to be Magneto. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, definitely a lot of photo reference. I think they moved away from it a little bit as the series went on, but still, it was pretty pretty obvious there for a while. Well, and later on, it looks even worse because of the fact that, oh you're not using photo references and you apparently don't understand how anatomy works all that well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Image gallery. You can check it out there. And then we also have the backstory, which was the Sentinels written by Bolivar Trask, where the premises Sentinels are bred by the breeders council to fight mutants. Uh, Nimrod is the top Sentinel. His partner is Rachel who's been abducted, so he goes into New York City to try and find her, and New York City had been devastated by a phoenix bomb. He forces the muties, who live there, to bring him to Rachel, but she doesn't want to return, because she is hanging out with Callisto, the queen of the muties, who promises to show him the truth. It turns out that uh, only the muties still have emotions. Not locations. Why did I write locations (laughs) there? Yeah, and uh, and Nimrod learns about the magic of jazz music, dancing, and laughter. If only they had learned the magic of jizz music. Uh, so Stephen Lang, who created the Sentinels and who is believed to have been killed by the Muties, protested the removal of emotions because it would lead to the removal of humanity in the Sentinels. 
and he's been hiding out with the Mutis ever since. That's when Bastion and his Sentinels bust in, killing Dr. Lang and Rachel. Nimrod and Callisto end up stealing a Phoenix bomb. He detonates it, destroying Bastion and like the remainders of civilization. And so Nimrod and Callisto are the only ones left to repopulate the Earth the old fashioned way. Yeah, they're going to bone down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did enjoy perhaps uh, more than it deserved, but I did enjoy having the bomb be able to be set to E for extinction. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like nice callbacks, especially in the titles and stuff. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it yeah. usually felt like a bit of a slog to read through after the X-Men issue. Mm -hmm, for sure. It definitely felt like it could drag a little bit. And I think that it almost seemed like as the issues went on, they might have gotten notes like people aren't realizing how like uh, not serious these backups are supposed to be. Could you take the ridiculousness up a notch? Because it felt like it escalated each time. Uh, I mean, obviously you had new, new, New York early on. But, like, I think the third or fourth one started with racial, racially pure readers will remember. <laughs> just like, oh, okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that is the uh, first uh, arc of X-Men Noir, and it's a thing. It is definitively a thing. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. it's not the worst comic, but it definitely needed a second reread, which... Like, I, I posted the uh, cover today for the first issue and was like, can you identify who these people are if you haven't read the issue? Because it looks like a guy wearing red sunglasses, yep. a generic woman in brown hair, and then a guy who looks like he might be Jarvis from the Avengers. Yeah, it was often hard to follow. Uh, but like we said, there were some interesting ideas at play that could have been been picked at or developed a little more but uh as is i think that uh it's some missed potential and not it's not something i would give to someone you know uh but yeah but i would i would love to see like the alternate universe in which this got to go through a few more drafts and maybe with some not to better art yeah yeah with some better art we we can just say it i mean there are some artists here who like they do all of the art for it and they're and it works and then there's others where it doesn't, but I guess they got the books turned in on time. Mm -hmm. It looked good enough. So, uh, And as you know, we're waiting to put this on Trials of the Multiverse with everything else, but we can put on the Sentinels story because every story that's published in the Marvel Universe exists as an alternate universe, <laughs> which, weirdly, it was not uh, listed I believe you're the only person who's going to put on uh, one of these alternate universes. What's going to be the number for the Bulver Trask Sentinels universe? It's just going to be another Earth question mark. <laughs> we currently have uh, 98 of them on our list. Lovely. Yep, out of our 507 universes that we've covered. I uh, I did like that the name of the magazine was Scientific Fiction. I thought that was good. Yeah. Like, some of the small details were good, and then just, like, some of the stuff where there should have been small details were not there. Yeah, especially in, I'm going to say it, faces. Um, yeah, yep. Consistency with art, mm -hmm. you know. 
just small things. But yeah, uh, the Sentinel story was pretty good. Uh, so let me know if you're familiar with some of these universes as I bring them up. I'll do my very best. We'll see. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to find one. Did you ever read the uh, Justice Riders story? I did not. Uh, so I was sort of starting that area. Um, so there was an issue of Exiles that introduced Hulk Vereen which literally he just appeared on a few panels and it's the Wolverine has become a Hulk. How do you feel about this compared to that? Uh, the X-Men Noir story or the Bolivar Trask universe? The Bolivar Trask. All of the uh, X-Men okay. Noir or all the Noir like main stories are going to be ranked okay. as one universe at the end of this. Uh, I would say that this is better than Hulk Vereen be, mm-hmm. Not, I mean, as much as as much fun as Hulk Vereen sounds, I think that the idea of, I I I'm kind of a sucker for the parodying of the classic sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd put it over Hulk Vereen. Uh, okay, so there was a universe where Jean Grey survived on the moon during the trial of the Phoenix, and from there she went on to get addicted to power, ended up killing the X Men, and then ended up killing the entire universe. I think this is maybe a bit better than that. Yeah, I think it's close. I would give it slight edge. Uh, if there were more, if there was more Moon stuff involved, the way that Jean Grey lost her mind slash uh, ended up killing everyone, I'd be more about it. But mm-hmm. they don't do enough with the Moon, and that's that's a problem for me. <laughs> uh, okay, are you familiar with Old School Moon Knight? Uh, I've read like a little bit when I was first getting into the the new stuff. But uh, I wouldn't give myself the, uh, I wouldn't say that I know it very well. But you know how he has like the different identities. Yes, yes. So there was a joke universe, or there was a joke issue where they introduced the idea of what if Moon Knight got his identities mixed up? So he's dressed up like his taxi persona, but he's beating up a guy who didn't tip him well enough. (laughs) All right. Hmm. I think that's a bit closer. So like above that or right under it. Uh, hmm. I'd say right under it, I think. What do you think? Uh, right under that is Ryan Reynolds' movie Deadpool, which I don't know why we rank that on that. <laughs> also, I think I've got Ryan Reynolds' name spelled wrong on there. But I think it's a decent place for it now. Yeah. Uh, at the 96th spot. So, <laughs> womp womp. Earth- Question mark. Boulevard. Trasks. Science fiction sentinels. <laughs> yep. It would be kind of cool, though, if they brought that universe back because they're doing the new Exiles series with uh, Saladin Ahmed yes. writing. And it's like sometimes weird how they don't go and bring some things back. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, there's so much stuff and why not make new things instead of playing in someone else's toy box? Yeah, I think that I think that if they were to bring it back, I think Ahmed would be a great would be really good at it. Like Mm -hmm. he seems perfectly suited for it. Or like an Al Ewing. Yes. I mean, I would read anything Al Ewing did. uh, But yeah, Yeah. I did a uh, reread of Contest of Champions last night. 
that series is so good. It's so, so good. So uh, we've got a few generic questions, but since this one is running a bit long, what uh, Andrew Young, who is A.W. Young, who is also going to be covering the second half of X-Men Noir later on this month, <laughs> he wants to know what other Marvel characters would work well in a noir setting. I mean, obviously Daredevil kind of already lives in one. Um, well, and there is a Daredevil noir. Yes. Uh, hmm. I think that Domino could go well in a noir setting. Because uh, the whole idea of Crap Sack World being kind of against you and her kind of being able to tweak that, uh, I think mm-hmm. that could be some interesting reading. And aesthetically, it would work really well oh, with yeah. the white and black. 100%. Nice. Well, um, yeah, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and uh, Instagram at, at Stop Grammar Time. Uh, Tumblr, which I'm trying to be more active on, but I haven't been doing great at, at Stop Hyphen Mjolnir Time, because I found an aesthetic and I'm sticking with it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so those are my main uh, points of contact. <laughs> And uh, you can find Devin, my normal co-host, on Twitter at at FredoFett. That's F-R-E-D-D-O-F-E-T-T. You can find me online at at Coltreg on Twitter or at Luke L-E-K-E-H-E-R-R.com. And we also have uh, our website where you can uh, see the image gallery, see the show notes that I took, see the Trials of the Multiverse list at MultiversalQ.com. We have a Facebook, which I'm now posting things to every week. So you can follow the episodes there. Please like, rate, and review us on iTunes and all of your other podcast systems. It helps a lot. And we have a Patreon where you get uh, bonus things. Last week we had a special bonus content episode that Devin and I recorded go up. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Also, please check out the spinoff podcast, Exiled, which updates weekly on Saturdays. We are going to be back next time on Sunday with a double shot of Daredevil Noir and Wolverine Noir. So we will see you then. Until then, this one's for Hank. <laughs>